Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You go to school and what do you get told? At least back in the day. They're getting better now, right? But you got told what? You could be a doctor, you could be a nurse, you could be a fireman, you could be a police officer, you could be a teacher, right? White, what else was there? Oh, a lawyer, right? Like there really wasn't anything else. Nobody said you could be a business professional and this is what it would look like. Nobody explained that financial advisor was a type of role you could potentially have. I did not know, and I'm just, I'm telling y'all all the tea on this, okay? I did not know that you could be a financial advisor. I did not know that was a job until I was probably in my early 20s. I was like, wait, I don't understand. So you can actually, like, I just didn't realize I could do that job. I it just, it never occurred to me. No one explained how you would do it. I never knew like what licenses you would need to do it. I didn't know what the career path was for it, right? So yeah, every guidance counselor in the state of New York, I shame you all because you are doing a disservice to our kids, right? Like these are paths that we don't get told about. Thanks all for tuning in to Dreamcatchers where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dreams. Are you ready? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I have the pleasure of having Stacey Gordon with me today. Stacey, how are things out in Cali? They're hot, actually. <laughs> they are hot. We're in a heat wave. So, yes, it is warm. So I met Stacy through Justin Breen and he was like, you've got to talk to this lady. And the, we got on a call and then I saw up above her right shoulder, there was a book. And I was like, wait, you wrote a book? Because I don't ever do my research before I go into those intro calls. And I started digging into it and she's got this really cool book called Unbiased. And I was like, wait, what is this about? And so we talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We talked a little bit about her career, and then we just kind of went off on a tangent. And so today I'm going to be 
more in the lines and more in the boundary and more on topic, but it's going to be a whole lot about Stacy. So Stacy, before we dive into the episode, one thing we like to do is let the listeners know how they can get in touch with you and learn more about what you have going on. So a couple of ways you can get in touch with me. I am on fire on LinkedIn. So if you are on she LinkedIn, is. our marketing team is working overtime on trying to keep up with all the various things that I'm doing. So we post a lot, a lot of events, a lot of, you know, some of them are free, the things you can do, resources, articles, my newsletter. So connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm just, I'm literally Stacey Gordon on LinkedIn because I'm a long time LinkedIn collaborator. And so I got Stacey Gordon. <laughs> Stacy with the E, ladies and gentlemen, yes, you got to yes, get the yes. E in And you can find me on Instagram. I'm Diversity Diva. But I also have a rework work Instagram as well. Gosh, where else? Twitter, same thing. I'm Stacy A. Gordon on Twitter. We also have rework work handle on Twitter. And on Facebook, it's rework work. Okay. So the question that I probably haven't ever asked this way, who is Stacy? Who is Stacy? Good question. <laughs> and I laugh because there's so many ways I could answer that question that I'm trying to decide which way to do it. <laughs> so, well, I was born. <laughs> yeah, go right there. <laughs> I always laugh when people do that, right? Like, oh my goodness, I don't want your whole life story. But I think for me, yes, I was actually born in London. And so most people don't know that. I think the more I talk about it now, probably people do. But I've had friends for like 10, 12 years who up until a few years ago were like, wait, I didn't know you were born in London. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, I know, because I don't really talk about it. But now I do. And so born in London, in Croydon, actually. And I have a lot of family that is still there. My grandmother is still there. My aunt and quite a few uncles and nieces and nephews. And so I love being able to go back to London and see the family. But I actually moved to, well, my parents moved me to Brooklyn, New York, when I was probably about 11, maybe 12, probably 11, somewhere around there. And it's just crazy to go from being in England, you know, London as a Black person in a white world to then being a Black kid, but really having a lot of white tendencies in a Black world. (laughs) So it was very strange for me. So I've just always never really fit in wherever I was. And I think that that is what has helped me to do the work that I do because I just know I'm always going to stand out and probably say things that are going to shock and appall and confuse and frustrate others around me. And I'm just used to it. So So I was shocked that you said, what did you say? A black person in a white world and a black person with white tendencies in a black world. So what does that Mm -hmm. actually mean? Because I see a lot of people like you're acting white or saying (laughs) you know you're smart or you know some of these characteristics don't actually fit and i just like i don't know well and that's the current that's the u.s centric microaggression of that right but at the time it really was like i have a british accent i know 80s pop right but i don't know what rap is or (laughs) r&b because i didn't hear that music right And I really had no clue. Like, I knew who Boy George was, right? But maybe not voice to men. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I got a really quick and in-depth culture. Luckily for me, I'm very smart. And I learned a lot really, really quickly. I also learned when to keep my mouth shut, which those who know me now are like, wait, you know how to do that? <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> so I, I learned, you know, because I, I could be, imagine, I mean, think about this. Late 80s, early 90s, you're on a bus in Brooklyn, New York. Every single person is Black. There might be a couple of Latinos, right? And you open your mouth and they're like, wait, we hear a white person, but I don't see a white person. <laughs> it's the British accent. Here we go. So it was, it, it was interesting, uh, which is why I don't have a, a British accent anymore, right? As a kid, not knowing, there's a TED Talk by America Ferrara that talks about, like, my identity is my superpower. And I wish I had known back then that my British accent was a superpower because I would have kept that, right? Because apparently there are studies that show that if I speak to you in a British accent, I can get you to do just about anything. So imagine how much money I'd be making if I still had a British accent. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) We're not going to stay on topic. I know where this is going to go today. Okay. So you, all right. Why were you in London? Like, why were your parents in London? Ah, yes. So good question. Um, So my parents are Guyanese. Okay, here we go. Guyana, not Ghana, right? Those are two different countries. (laughs) Pull out your your world map, right? And take a look. But (laughs) so Guyana is in South America. Ghana is in Africa. Two different continents. (laughs) And so... My parents are from Guyana. My dad was actually taken to London by his dad, my grandfather, because back in the, I guess it was the 50s, they were looking for the British, right? They were going to all the different colonies and trying to get people to like work on the railroads and and all these different things. So my grandfather went over there as like a laborer, I believe, on, on the railroad, like for British Railway. Okay. And so he just stayed there and your mom was there and they met and it was magical. Oh, yeah. So he, well, no, he stayed there because he, he moved over there when he was like seven. So I guess my grandparents would go back to Guyana quite frequently. And my dad met my mom in Guyana, married her and then took her back to England. We bring everybody there. And then they said, we're going to skip across the pond. Why is that? Like, what was the promise of America? That I'm not 100% sure of. I just know, so something about Maggie Thatcher and the Dole and just stuff in England wasn't great to begin with anyway. And my dad's family went to England. My mom's family went to the United States. So they were getting told that stuff is so much better in the United States. You should come here. So they ended up going there. Oh, man. Talk about marketing. Here we go. Okay. So you guys get here. Yeah, the USA does everything better, right? It's the greatest marketing in the world, I promise. So you get here, you get culture shock. Now, is it culture shock? Is it skin color shock? Like, what is it actually? Because I think this is really what your expertise is. Let's talk about that. It is. And I think as, as a kid, right, you don't even understand what you're going through. You're just trying to get, like, literally for me, it was just survival. Like, I knew I needed to survive Brooklyn in the 90s. And so the only way I was going to do that was to assimilate and quickly. And so that's what I did, right? 
And I think that if we extrapolate that out, that's the same thing that Black people have to do in a white world, right, is we have to assimilate and quickly. And we get socialized on how to assimilate, right? We straighten our hair, we talk with a proper accent, we make sure we don't speak with, you know, any slang, we change how we show up in the workplace, right? Those are the things that we do that tell us what we have to assimilate. And, and we get told, right, how to do it from the movies, from the music we listen to, from the shows we watch, right? We listen to the politicians, we listen to our bosses, we listen to our pastors. <laughs> okay. Do we have to assimilate? Not, I don't think we, we shouldn't have to assimilate, right? So do we have to assimilate and should we assimilate? I think are two different questions. <laughs> and sometimes, you know what, again, we go back to, is it Brooklyn in the 90s, right? Do you have to assimilate? Because it's going to potentially save your life, right? <laughs> and your livelihood, or do you not? And you buck the system and you just show up as your authentic self. Now, that's what we're telling everybody. Show up as your authentic self. Don't cover in the workplace. But if you don't have a workplace that is psychologically safe, you can best believe I'm going to do what I have to do to keep this job so that I can feed my family. Because it's more important for me to be able to feed my family and feed myself than to show up and make waves in the workplace. Okay. So really tribe mentality. I need to be a part of the tribe in order to survive. And if I'm not, then there's a high likelihood that we will perish. Like, I just want to make sure that's where it is, right? I mean, it, it is. So I bring things down to really like, and I get things aren't black and white, but this was why I loved working as a recruiter, right? The thing I absolutely loved, and maybe it was slightly ego as well, right? But I really enjoyed being able to help people get a job, not just any job, but a job they liked, right? A job that paid well. I would advocate for them and help them get the best salary that they could get. And that's important because we're already, and I say we, but women, people of color, right? We are already getting paid less than our white male counterparts. So every time that we take a job and we don't get the absolute most we can possibly get paid for that job, we have less money to be able to pass along to our families and to create legacies with. And this is why we also have a widening economic gap, right? Because we've got less, we're getting given less to begin with. We've got less to be able to pass on. And so we're having to do more with less. And that just totally ticks me off, right? Oh boy. So all right. You've had a bunch of different roles along the journey, right? Recruiter. Uh -huh. You're formally trained as a attorney. Well, I, so I, it's so funny. I was just talking to someone about this yesterday and I said, I am a proud law school dropout. Oh, say more. <laughs> because I mean, that's the epitome, right? If you immigrated to America, you're either a doctor or a lawyer. Yes. I mean, that is what everybody's parents want them to be. Yes. So I got asked to speak at a, a legal conference at the end of this year. So we were talking about the session yesterday. We were discussing what it's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I didn't even realize I was still harboring resentment over this. <laughs> but in talking to her, it came up. And yes, I'm a proud law school dropout because I shouldn't have been in law school in the first place, right? Law school was not my path. But again, 
and I'm using my lens for this, right? So we think about lower socioeconomics class and schools, right? School systems that are not that great. You go to school and what do you get told? At least back in the day. They're getting better now, right? But you got told what? You could be a doctor, you could be a nurse, you could be a fireman, you could be a police officer, you could be a teacher, right? White, what else was there? Oh, a lawyer, right? Like there really wasn't anything else. Nobody said you could be a business professional and this is what it would look like. Nobody explained that financial advisor was a type of role you could potentially have. I did not know, and I'm just, I'm telling y'all all the tea on this, okay? I did not know that you could be a financial advisor. I did not know that was a job until I was probably in my early 20s. I was like, wait, I don't understand. So you can actually, like, I just didn't realize I could do that job. I just, it never occurred to me. No one explained how you would do it. I never knew like what licenses you would need to do it. I didn't know what the career path was for it, right? So yeah, every guidance counselor in the state of New York, I shame you all because you are doing a disservice to our kids, right? Like these are paths that we don't get told about. So when I became a financial advisor, I was like, I, didn't, I did not know I could do this. So I went out with gusto and with zeal and was recruiting every black and brown person I could find. Because I was like, do you know you can help other people make money? <laughs> like, do you know we can do this? <laughs> what made the money important to you? Well, exactly what I Right, mean. because I mean, as kids, we everything just kind of shows up. So was there experience that you had where you're like, economic empowerment is important? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think about my dad, right? So my dad, who is probably one of the smartest people that I know, and how his career stalled and he really couldn't get where he wanted to get to because of who he was, right? Because of the fact that he was a Black man. And I get that along the way, he's now so jaded that even when he did have the opportunity to finally go back to school, he actually got, this is how, how smart he is, he actually got enrolled at NYU in their architecture program. And he went for like a couple of classes and then he stopped going because he was an older gentleman who did not know how to deal. He was just like too much like, I can't deal with the microaggressions of this, right? He just couldn't do it. And he stopped going and he dropped out and did not finish. But back in the day, he also got kicked out of school because of things that happened that should not have happened, right? And so everywhere along the way, like my dad could have been a career architect, probably like he has the expertise and the skills to actually build a house from the ground up. Like he knows everything, plumbing, electrical, HVAC, you name it, he can do the whole damn thing, right? <laughs> but never got to a place where he could really use those skills. I mean, I still remember the days in New York City where he would go, you know, and I don't know if it works this way anymore, but the unions, right? You can't get into the unions unless you're Italian, right? So you couldn't get into the plumbing union. You couldn't get into the carpenters union. You couldn't get into the electrical union. There were all these unions he could not get into. And he used to go and stand out there like they do now, right? You go outside of a Home Depot. What do you do? You find a lot of Latinos. What are they doing? Waiting for somebody to pick them up and maybe take them on a day job. That's what my dad used to do. He would go and day labor. Doesn't pay well. No, it does not. Right. So 
that is what I grew up with. And just realizing that the economies, not economies of scale, but economic inequity, right, is what holds us back. And then ignorance of that economic inequity, because many people don't even realize how behind they are because they don't even understand the system that we're working in. Whoa. Okay. You rolled something over, but first I want to define microaggressions for the people who are less sophisticated like me, right? What is a microaggression? And then we got to come back to ignorance on economic disparity. Yeah. So microaggressions, I mean, we all experience them. You all know what they are. Um, (laughs) I don't even know what the formal definition is right now off the top of my head. So microaggressions, they're actually discovered or I guess defined um, because they've always been around by Daryl Dwing Sue, right? And Chester Pierce, they talk about the small inequities. We have micro inequities, we have micro assaults, we have micro micro inequities, micro assaults. I forget, there's a third one. And the idea, right, is that people are usually saying things in a way that they think is somehow positive to you or complimentary to you, but is really not. And so some examples of that would be the where are you from, right? And when you tell someone, oh, well, I'm from the United States, they say, oh, but yeah, where are you really from? The where are you really from is the microaggression. Because what I'm saying is, well, you can't possibly be from the United States because you look Latino and you have an accent. So where are you really from, <laughs> right? Or, you know, you speak English so well. It's like, really, you too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, heck, one of the microaggressions you mentioned earlier is you sound white, you speak too white, you sound too white. That's a microaggression perpetuated by Black people against other Black people. But why, though? Like, that's one of the things I've always struggled with. Like, if somebody is intelligent and you're acting white or you you talk white or whatever it is, why... Is that a cultural thing? Is that an economic thing? Is that, what is really the root of that? It's all the things, right? I mean, it's, it's literally all of those things. First, we're, we're socialized. We are socialized to behave a certain way. I think I said this earlier. So what is it? Dr. Bobby Harrow. If you Google the cycle of socialization, you will see that we are all socialized. And I really think of it because it's a cycle, right? Like a hamster wheel. So we're all on this hamster wheel and we're just running and running and running on this hamster wheel. The only way to break this cycle of the way that we've been socialized is to actually jump off the wheel, right? You can't stay in the wheel and it's like being in the matrix, right? That's why I like your shirt, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like you can't stay in the matrix and try to then say that you're, not, you're still part of it, right? You have to literally take yourself all the way out. And most people aren't ready. We're not ready to take ourselves out because there's too many things we are tied. And it's purposely done that way, right? We're tied in so many ways. I have a a consultant I work with who uses the example all the time of like, um, if your grandmother is very religious, right? Christian grandmother who was like, we're going to church every Sunday. And you, you know, as a kid, you go because you're a kid, you have no choice. But then what happens? You go off to college and you take a Christianity course, right? A religious course. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? And you start learning about Apocrypha and you start learning about how the way that, you know, 
the world actually works and you come back and you go, I don't know about this Christianity thing. You know, I'm really looking into some Buddhism. Your grandmother's going to look at you like, what? I'm sorry. You're going to church, right? You have that fight with your grandmother. At some point, you are going to have to make a decision. Which is more important, the relationship with my grandmother or my newfound beliefs? And that's literally how tough this is to do because you are going to have to say to your grandmother, who you love dearly, I am not going to church with you, grandma on Sunday. And you know that's going to hurt your grandmother. Your grandmother's going to be mad at you. She might stop talking to you for a month, right? But she's your grandmother and she's going to eventually be like, okay, okay, baby, right? <laughs> We're going to work it out. But that's what it's like. You're having to literally go against the grain. And so if every time you've got to make a decision, you're having to go against the grain, at some point you go, you know what? This is just not worth it. I'm just going to, let me just get back on the hamster wheel because that's just easier, right? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So it's easier to go with the flow, right? It's easier to go downstream than paddle upstream. And I think a lot of people fear the work of paddling upstream. But that's the work and that's the journey and the path that you've been on. You're helping companies figure out how to make people feel more included. Because what you just said, I think about when I decided that I was going to stop getting haircuts when I was still in corporate America. And this is a microaggression. Yes, here we go. So the guy that was my supervisor, supervisor said, hey, Jerome, what's up with that crazy haircut? Right. And I was like, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem crazy to me. And I kept bebopping along. Right. But the point of the matter is when you decide that you're not going to conform to the norms, the tribe can either accept you as you show up or they can right. exile you. And I think most people are scared of somebody else being able to make that decision for them. Right. But I think that's where we have to realize that there are other circles we can move to, right? And other circles that might be bigger. Once you get out of the little circle that you're in, then you're like, oh, there are other things outside. But until you leave that circle, you'll never know. That is the fear, right? That's how they get you is it's stuck is because you have this fear of, well, no one else is going to want you. No one else is going to accept you. No one else is going to love you like we do. You know, it's like, well, if that's, that's what love is, you can keep it, right? <laughs> so realizing that sometimes, yeah, you have got to step outside of the circle. And then you realize that there is a whole lot of other really cool stuff going on that you would never have seen had you not left the little bubble that you were in. What's up, tribe? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know that we put together a free 15-point checklist for exiting the matrix. Jump on over to dreamshouldbereal.com in order to pick your free copy up. Let's get back to the show. Okay. And so I want to come back to ignorance about economic disparity now. So like, when did you first come across that and identify it as a real issue? I don't know that I can answer that. <laughs> I think it is one of those things that we all see the disparities, right? We all see just the differences, even in families, right? You know, you might have one family unit that at Christmas time, they get six or seven gifts. And then you've got another family unit that at Christmas time, there's 30 gifts under the tree, right? And you don't like going to that auntie's house at Christmas because they always have more gifts under the tree than you do, right? I mean, we see these things, we see these disparities. 
so I think the issue that we have is that we don't look to see why are they there and how can we overcome them. Instead, we distance ourselves from that person or we want to hate on that person rather than saying, hey, you have more than I do. How did you get it? Right. Help me get it. <laughs> well, are we scared to ask that question? Like, why don't we seek that knowledge? Why aren't we asking for access to the information? Is it just because we want the shortcut to the end result? I think there's a lot of the shortcut to the end result, right? Like, as humans, we are lazy. We're always going to take the shortcut. You tell me today there's a shortcut for me to lose these COVID-15, I am taking it. Like, what pill do I have to take? What do I have to do, right? Of course. But if you tell me I need to spend the next year working out five times a week, I might just keep the 15. Like, well, I've gotten used to the little extra handles. It's it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> right? <laughs> so we're always going to take the shortcut. And we have to realize that about ourselves and about people. Because the other part that we'll say is we want to be hard on others. We want to say, I got here because I'm great and I'm spectacular and I'm good at what I do. And you're not here because you're not as good and you're not as smart, right? And that's why you're not here. Instead of saying, you're not at the same level that I'm at because I haven't bothered to help or because you have other barriers that you're facing, right? I don't see that because all I care about is my own journey and where I am. So there's so many things all intertwined that make this difficult, but I do think part of it has to be also that as people who are underrepresented, we do have to start asking. We have to start doing the hard work of empowering ourselves and learning and also asking for things because we have been so conditioned that when we ask for things that we're going to get the hammer, right? That we don't ask anymore. And not only do we not ask, but we end up conditioning our kids to not ask. So this gets passed down in our behaviors, in what we do, in how we show up. And that is actually a large part of our detriment because we are in a place, you know, where most people do not wake up in the morning and say, I'm not promoting Jerome today because he's black, right? Like that's not on the agenda. That's not what people are doing. But because of the circumstances and because of the policies and because we just continue to do things the way they've always been done, that's what happens, right? And so Jerome has to be like, hey, I would like to be promoted and I need to know what do I have to do to get promoted? You need to be very specific with me and tell me what the expectation is and what I need to do and when I need to do it by so that I can get promoted, right? Because then Jerome's gonna get promoted. But Jerome doesn't ask, and no one's just handing out promotions. <laughs> but Jerome doesn't ask also because he's been trained not to ask. He's been trained not to make waves. He's been trained to just, you know, just be happy you have a job, right? Just be happy you're employed. Because you also know that heaven forbid you are let go or furloughed or fired or you decide to leave, it's going to take you longer to get a job, a new job right? You have to go through more interviews. You're going to be unemployed for longer than your white counterparts, which is also then going to mess with your socioeconomic status, right? <laughs> Always comes back to the dollars. This is outstanding. Okay. So 
financial services. How do you write a book on being unbiased? Like who showed up to help you along the way? Who showed up to help me? You know what? And I've said this many times and the guys always get mad when I say it, but I was like, hashtag facts. Okay. (laughs) The people who have helped me along the way have all been women. Every single one of them. They've been women. People who have gone out of their way and said, Stacey, what do you need? How can I help you? People who I haven't talked to in a couple of years, right? Where we're still friendly and whatever, who have picked up the phone and called me or texted me or sent me an email and said, I see you wrote a book. I'd love to help you promote it. How can I help you? Have all been women. They had no need to do that, right? They could have continued doing whatever they do in their daily lives. They chose to reach out to me and say, how can I help? And that's the thing that we have to do more of is do that for others. But to answer your question, yes, people who have helped me along the way, when I look back at the people who have given me the best opportunities, the best referrals, access, information, put money in my pocket, all women. I don't know how I feel about it. I want to hit the boo button, (laughs) but... Go ahead, I dare you. (laughs) The part that I struggle with, though, is, you know, a lot of times people feel like there's only space for one of us, right? And so the fact that other women are opening doors and creating opportunities, I want to cheer for that, right? But the idea that, oh, man, like... The other side of the table isn't participating in the game is it's a little frustrating and disappointing. Well, it's a lot of frustrating and disappointing. So, okay. Women have locked arms with Stacy and said, we're going to push her to the next level or pull her to the next level. And you get on the journey. You're going through this process of creating this amazing book. And I mean, you know, I got a book I published, right. But I did it through KDP, right. I did it through Amazon self-publishing like you, You got like a real publishing company that did the thing, right? Because of a woman, by the way. See, here we go. The women are (laughs) here. Maybe I should like not be here. Maybe a woman should be interviewed. (laughs) No, I'm just, I mean, and this is the thing, right? I try to be 100% real. Am I discounting opportunities that have come my way through men? And, And I don't mean to make it a men versus women thing, right? But I'm trying to make the point that it's the same kind of thing for all the people who stepped up in June of 2020 and said, we stand with you. Black Lives Matter. We're putting up a black square. We're going to do all of these things, right? Where are those people today? And what have they done? They've moved on. And so it's the same thing with this. Like It it literally, for me, is comparable because... Men want to say, we got your back. We're an ally. We want to help. How can we help? What can we do? And it's like you get presented with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to help others, and you don't. You don't. And so I want to highlight that and get people to realize that what you say and what you think you're doing and what you're actually doing are two very different things. Because in your head, right? They're like, oh, yeah, I'm a great guy. Of course, I promote women. I help women in my workplace. Of course, I would never sexually harass anybody or do any of that stuff, right? But then they're the same people who, when somebody does sexually harass somebody in the workplace, they're like, oh, well, that's just John. You know how he is, right? And you still promote John. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> All right. So let me drop the mic. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sitting here like, okay, so how do I get out of this? And there is no way out of it because it's the truth, right? I mean, there's no way that you get to avoid it. But it does allow me to weave into this. And so let's talk a little bit about the challenges of the journey. Like, what have you, it's kind of three of the smaller things that maybe you've had to overcome in order to come to this place where, I mean, you're an international expert on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. Oh, gosh. What have I overcome? Um, Well, I think one of the things is, which I, I started and I went off on a tangent and I never quite got back to this point, which was my little rant about college advisors, right? Guidance counselors. When I went to law school, I was telling everybody that I worked with, and this is another example, right? I worked with a bunch of men. I worked in a a small law firm with a bunch of guys. And I said, I want to go to law school. And I said, but what I want to do when I get out of law school is I want to start a business. I want to work for myself. And I really want to learn more about business. So I don't even really want to take the bar. I just want the JD degree. So nobody said, right, and I've said this to many, many, many people along the way, nobody said, well, Stacey, maybe don't do law school, maybe go get an MBA, right? Nobody said this. Or, hey, maybe do an MBA JD, right? These were not options that were ever floated to me until I went to law school, hated it so much, and I was like, this is just not for me, I don't want to do this. Dropped out. Actually, no, if I'm being real, I applied to law school. I got in. I didn't go because I was like, oh, I'm going to go do some traveling instead. And I went on vacation and did a bunch of stuff. So when I asked the law school to hold my admission for the next year, they were like, no, we won't do that. You have to reapply. I still didn't go. And I was like, that's fine. I'll just reapply. Because I think deep down, I was hoping they would reject me. They didn't. I still got in. So then it was like, well, you got into law school. You know how many people want to get into law school and can't get into law school? And you got into a really good law school. You should go. So I went and I did a year of law school. And I was like, I hate this. I hate this so much. I got really good grades, but I hated it. So then I moved out of state. So I left law school and I ended up applying to another law school. They accepted me. And I went. And then halfway through that semester, I was like, okay, this is really stupid, Stacey. You hate the law. Why are you doing this? I finally dropped out, right? It wasn't until a couple of years after I dropped out, and I was telling somebody about my whole journey and what I had done, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, well, why didn't you just go to business school instead of law school? And I literally was like, oh, yeah, that is something I probably could have done. But I am telling you that for like six years, I told people what my plan was and nobody said, it's a stupid plan. You should go to business school. (laughs) Maybe they were scared to tell you. Is that a thing? Could they be scared to input themselves in your plan if you didn't ask them for advice? The only person who wasn't scared to tell me was my husband, but he didn't give me the next step either, right? And, I, and I'm not saying somebody else has to, has to come up with my plan for me, but what I'm saying is that these are the things that we don't realize that if people don't know, sometimes you just don't know, and you don't necessarily know where to go to look for answers or to get information. We just make assumptions that Everybody knows everything, right? And we don't necessarily impart that info. So even for my husband, he was like, Stacey, 
don't go to law school. It's not for you. You are not going to like it. You shouldn't do it because he went to law school. He was like, I'm telling you, don't do it. But of course I didn't listen to him. I still went because I didn't have an alternative. <laughs> had I had an alternative, I probably wouldn't have gone. <laughs> but he was the only person who said, don't go to law school. <laughs> oh, but you didn't listen to him. <laughs> I didn't listen because I needed a graduate in my mind, right? And this is the imposter syndrome thing. I was like, I need a graduate degree. I need to learn more. I don't know enough. So I need to go get more information. And if I don't go to law school, what else am I going to do, right? And I didn't know the answer to the what else am I going to do. So I went to law school. Okay. And so you got to help me here, right? Eventually, like you leave and you go start doing your own thing. I mean, I know you still teach, but like you start doing your own thing. And so what gave you the courage to just kind of venture out on your own? And when did that actually happen in this journey? So it happened twice. First, when I started my recruiting company, that happened because I went to, well, I had experience doing a lot of recruiting. I was helping companies and I had a whole Rolodex full of Fortune 500 companies, right? And I thought, okay, I love recruiting. I should go be a diversity recruiter. So I went to all my contacts that I had at all these companies. And I said, I'm looking for a job as a diversity recruiter. They all said to me, Stacey, we absolutely love you. You'd be great as a recruiter, but we can't hire you as a diversity recruiter because it's like a specialized job. And usually somebody who's been a recruiter in our company would take that role because, you know, these huge companies with 50,000 employees, they have one diversity recruiter, right? Or maybe two. <laughs> so none of them were like, they were like, we can't hire you for this job. So I got tired of being told no. And I said, well, screw it. I'll just start my own recruiting company. So that's what, how I got started in recruiting. And I recruited for a number of years. And then I realized that I was kind of perpetuating. I was contributing right to this cycle and I was not happy about it. And I was like, I need to stop. And I was like, the companies really need education around diversity, equity, and inclusion so they can hire better. And I went in-house to a client to see really what their diversity practices were like. And after a couple of months of that, I was like, oh, hell, they don't know what they're doing. I was like, I can do this, no problem. <laughs> so that gave me the confidence to really go out on my own because I was like, if this is what diversity, equity, inclusion looks like inside of a corporate company, we are all screwed. <laughs> wow. And so who was the first woman that gave you a contract to teach a company how to do it? You know, well, gosh, I would say it wasn't the first, but one of the ones that really helped was actually one of our clients out of the Bay Area, their DEI person happened to be a friend of one of the consultants that I work with. And she reached out to my friend, Sonia, and said, hey, we'd love you to bid for this. And Sonia reached out to me and said, hey, can we partner on it? And we partnered on it and we got the work. And that was really a catalyst for a lot of the workshops that we do now, because Sonia and I partnered and built out all these great programs. And we use those for many of the clients that we work with now. And then that same person actually left that company and went to a different company and then called us again. And so now we're about to work on an even bigger project. So we're really excited. <laughs> Here we go. 
Same lady. Her. When, when she. <laughs> but, hashtag facts. I'm like, I'm waiting, Mike. I'm waiting for the phone call from a dude any any time, any day that you would like to introduce me to your golf buddies, to your smoking club, your cigar club, to whatever, right? I'm like, I'll wait. I won't hold my breath, but I'll wait. <laughs> All right. So I was going to let you off the hook, but I can't. Everything that we've talked about has been peachy. It's been rosy. In all of this work that you've done, was there a rock bottom as you were going on this crazy journey and navigating all of this stuff? I almost say you law school because you hated it, but I don't know if that's actually the thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I've taken everything as a learning, right? And I will say one of the moments that really impacted me was last year after George Floyd was murdered because... You know, candidly, we weren't doing as much business as we are now, right? The work, we've been doing the work for years, but we, it was an uphill battle. You talk to companies and they're like, yeah, we're not sure if we have the resources. Well, it's not on our agenda this year, maybe next year, right? It would take a lot longer. We were knocking on a lot of doors. Now I don't have to knock on doors. They not, they call me, right? <laughs> so that's been the switch. But what happened was I realized that I was very very invisible as a black woman while simultaneously extremely visible as Stacy the DEI expert and it was a very weird thing to come to terms with because i realized people were happy to talk to Stacy the DEI expert but Stacy the black woman was a different thing right like that person people had been had no problem ignoring but all of a sudden, you know, it's like, oh, but you're a DEI expert and we, we have problems now and we need to talk to you. And it's like, I called you last year and said we should do this and you ignored me. <laughs> but today you, you want to talk. Wow. And the price went up. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> the price went up. You should have did it on my terms. Anyway. Okay. So that. It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Everybody's like, oh, all things are great. This tragedy happened, but we're making more money than we've ever made. But it's on the back of something that should have never happened. It is kind of the... And something that continues to happen, right? I mean, continues and continues and continues to happen. So that's the other part of it, too, is that I think we don't want that, you know, George Floyd to overshadow all the other people, I mean, I think it's like the next week, right? Like another person got killed. I mean, like it's literally, if we Google and look, right? Like sometimes I'll Google story about black man killed by police just to see what will pop up because there will be so many different stories, right? So not, not to say, obviously it's really frustrating and what has happened to George Floyd and to his family and to all of the individuals, uh, to Breonna Taylor, you know, to uh, Ahmaud Arbery, God, goodness, like that was way back, but to Eric Garner, right? These are all, I, I, if we were to pull out the names, it would be like, you know, Santa's naughty, naughty list. You would still be a scroll, right, of all the names. And we have to also acknowledge that it shouldn't have taken that 
in order for us to do something about what's happening in the corporate world and also understand that we're still not fixing that problem, right? Like that problem, that murder caused us to look at, oh, corporate America, let's look at this. But it's like, but wait, could we fix the actual problem that existed, right, in the police stations, right? And, and looking at what's actually happening there in police forces across America. And I think there's definitely been some of that, but that's a huge area that needs to be delved into. Thank you for sharing that. Let's go to the final four questions, Stacey. I ask every guest the same four questions and the answers are always really interesting because I never know how people are going to approach them. The first one, what are you most grateful for? I am most grateful for and this is going to sound silly, but just, just breath in my lungs, right? Like I wake up every morning and I thank God I'm alive because we're not guaranteed. They're not guaranteed tomorrow. And I have quite a few people in my close network that are young and that are going through major health issues and challenges right now. And so I am just grateful that I am even healthy enough, able-bodied enough to do this work. What dreams are you most focused on catching next? I am most focused on getting my, I'm working on an asynchronous online DEI course for people that I'm really hoping is going to have some great impact for people. What gift are you giving the world? Me. <laughs> huh? I joke. Um <laughs> No, I mean, so that question is intentionally, of course it's you, but what part of it? Tell me more. I mean, honestly, my children, that is the gift I am giving this world. I have three daughters and I look at each of them and they have such wonderful talents and gifts. And two of them are, in, well, one's in college now, one's going to be in college in the fall. So I have two in college in the fall. And my youngest is a spitfire, like you would not believe. And I just think God help the world because she's going to conquer it. <laughs> the whole world. The whole world. She already <laughs> said, like, from the time she was three, she was like, she wants to be president of the United States. So she's coming for y'all. <laughs> Stacey, I, I want to thank you for being the essence and the epitome of a dream catcher. You've set your sights on so many different things been dropped in a bunch of different environments and found your way through those, not without struggle, not without challenge, but in spite of those things. And I think so many of us can look to you as inspiration. And so just wanted to level on you a little bit before I ask you the final question. Thanks. And the final question, for sure. The final question is, what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode? That they can have impact, right? Positive impact. It's not about looking at your neighbor and expecting them to do something or looking at your boss and expecting them to do something or looking at your CEO, but looking at what can you do today to have positive impact on the next person that you meet. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. You heard it from Stacy, ladies and gentlemen, you can have impact. It's on you. And as I always close out the episode, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.